Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to a podcast series that we're calling Living Water. I like to say that most people think they should read the Bible, or perhaps they even want to read the Bible, but they can't read it because they don't understand it. And as a result, much of our Bibles go unread and unloved. This semester, we're taking the concept of water, or the lack of it, to look at all the stories of the Bible to see if we can see old stories in a new way and perhaps meet some new friends in old stories. And in the last two episodes, these have taken place on the Sea of Galilee, In this episode, we're going to look at the region of Galilee. Yet Galilee is more than a lake. It's actually a beautiful and it's a fascinating place. It's a region that begins with the Jezreel Valley in the north of Israel, or in that day would be Judea, uh, and runs north into southern Lebanon. Uh, Southern Galilee is very hilly, including uh, the village of Nazareth. North Galilee is actually mountainous, capped by Mount Hermon at 10,000 feet. That mountain has snow on it uh, much of the year, and there's a ski resort there right on the border of Syria and Lebanon. So if you're ever thinking of going skiing, perhaps you can uh, ditch Aspen and go to uh, right go to the border of Syria. Uh, but it's a beautiful, beautiful mountain. And it's also a fascinating place because Galilee sits on three tectonic plates, which means that the Sea of Galilee is an African lake with African fish, African flora and fauna around it. I'm talking about tilapia in the lake with bougainvillea and bananas. And then go one and a half hours north, and you've got on either side of the Jordan River, you've got Europe on one side and Asia on the other, which means that an hour and a half north of an African lake, you've got brook trout and cherry trees. Absolutely fascinating biodiverse place, this region of Galilee. And it's in the hills of southern Galilee uh, that uh, that you find Nazareth, as I mentioned, and then a nearby place called Cana. Nazareth and Cana are adjacent to each other like many little country towns. They know each other. Uh, the lines cross, right? Families uh, cross, and everybody knows everyone's name to the point that a would-be disciple named Nathaniel asked about Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, anyway, it's in this place called Cana that we find another water story, which we're going to talk about today, which takes place at a now famous wedding. We all know about the wedding at Cana. Most of us know so that it's become sort of a cliche. But there are two ways to really read the story. One is to simply enjoy it, immerse yourself into the charm of it, right, and the world of Jesus and the festivities. And the other is to look for deeper meaning, which is what we'll try to do in this episode. But first, let's read it and try to hear the story as if you're hearing it for the first time. This is the turning of water into wine at the wedding of Cana. John chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there, there were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. 
he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water so that it had become wine, and he did not know where it came from, although the stewards who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine is served after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. When I was a minister in a little church in North Alabama, Decatur, Alabama, one of our vacation Bible school programs was to have a, quote, children's wedding. Somebody had a neat idea. They figured that children never get to attend weddings unless they're in a wedding. And so we had a wedding uh, comprised of children. We had a child bride and a child groom. I remember the child bride was much more excited about the event than the child groom. And I'm not really sure what the point of the lesson was, except the kids had a lot of fun. We had children attendance, and we had a reception with cake and sparkling grape juice. And my son, who was a funny little kid, he uh, he was the father of the bride. And at the back of the church, he stood there with his little daughter bride on his arm, and he exclaimed very loudly, I can't believe I have to pay for all this. Well, it's a funny story. And the punchline is, is because, right, the punchline is possible because we know about weddings, and we know how weddings work, and we know that that's what daddies do. This much I know. Weddings are a big deal in our culture, and they've always been a big deal in our church, especially post-COVID. They seem to get bigger and bigger. I have a friend in Montgomery who has a clothing store, and men don't necessarily buy suits and ties anymore for work, but they buy them for weddings. And so just about every tie this fella sells, he sells it for someone to dress up and go to somebody's church for a wedding. We're even starting to have weddings during football games, which never happened before. It's a very funny book written years ago by a man named Warren St. John. It was called Rammer Jammer, where he follows around the RV culture of football in the South. And he talks about an Episcopal priest who's now dead, but a friend of mine, Ray Pratt, who was the rector of Christ Church in Tuscaloosa. And the wedding took place during the Alabama-Tennessee game. And so the story in the back of the the book, almost a postscript, was that he conducted this wedding while having a television set on the top of the organ console with the game going on so he could watch the game while he conducted the wedding. I didn't believe it. I thought it was an urban myth. So I called Reverend Pratt and I said, did you actually have a television set on during the Alabama-Tennessee game while you conducted the vows? And he replied, I didn't have the sound on. That would be tacky. So we all know about weddings, and we all have wedding stories, and weddings are a lot of fun. And so post-COVID, they seem to be happening with more and more frequency. But let's look at the details of this wedding and see what they reveal before we go to the deeper meaning. Notice when I read the story to you that Mary had something to do with the arrangements. She was worried about the wine, and she also had authority over the servants. Generations of theologians would play with this and work with this and fret over this and figure that Mary must have been related somehow to the family or that the Apostle John was the bridegroom, all kinds of stretches. I see this here at my church. I think women just fall into action whenever there's a wedding. If something needs to be done, if that's flowers on the table or a dress needs to be straightened or candles on the altar, uh, the women of our church will all spring into action. When it comes to a wedding, they've all got skin in the game. So Mary is doing what women do. But notice there's no Joseph. He presumably has died. Joseph, by tradition, 
uh, was is an old man in the story, an old man betrothed to a young girl because he disappears so quickly. He's gone for so long that it's very possible that Jesus stayed in Nazareth as long as he did to support his family. This is an important point. Just remember, Jesus got started at age 30, and it's quite possible he did this because he had mouths to feed. By tradition, Joseph and his family, they were carpenters, but that word tecton means laborers. And who knows what Jesus had to do to make sure that the family had food in their mouths, to make sure that his mama was taken care of. Children were the financial support system for the family. And here's a point to this little detail. Every call that God has upon us has an element of responsibility. People will come to me fairly frequently and explore the idea of becoming an ordained minister. They want to go to seminary. They want to become a preacher. And the first thing that I'll ask them is, well, let's talk that out. You know, seminary is three years without an income, and ministers often don't make very much money. Uh, how can you support your family if they have one? Let's, let's work this out. And then sometimes we'll explore other ways that someone might serve uh, in the church that wasn't in an ordained role because, quite frankly, it wouldn't be very helpful to the family. It wouldn't be fair to the to the to the children, if you will, or they couldn't even afford to do it. I mean, every call has an element of responsibility to other people. God doesn't ask us to hurt our families as we follow God's call upon our heart, which adds to another element. I had a professor that once said the problem with the Episcopal Church is we want to take every serious Christian and send them off to seminary. Right? Hang around the church a little too much, and poof. Off you go to Sewanee. Okay, here's another detail. It was a village wedding. We have our own story at St. Luke's that you might find interesting. St. Luke's is a big suburban church in, in a suburb of Birmingham, Alabama. It's one of the largest Episcopal churches in the country with lots of resources, but it started small. It started in the village of Crestline, which is the village adjacent to our church, and it started in a farmhouse where some old an old house sat empty for a long time until some young families put new life into it. They put a locomotive bell on the roof. We had children spilling out into the yard. In fact, the children went to Sunday school in the fire station across the street that sits there today. Now that lot, it, the house was torn down and that lot became our, our library. But a lot of people don't know that St. Luke's was born in a farmhouse in that part of the neighborhood. So in 1949, 1950, they had the first wedding. Janie Cotton was the prettiest teacher at Crestline Elementary School, and she was engaged to Brooks Cotton. Uh, they, he was a med school student, and they had a neat idea. They both had found St. Luke's, and they wanted to get married in their church. Janie was from a large downtown Episcopal church that would one day become our cathedral. Beautiful brick and stained glass and big city and big city receptions and, and, and all the things that come with the, with, with the fancy downtown congregation. Yet she wanted to have a wedding in her church, which meant a farmhouse, and that meant cut flowers from the yard and bows from the trees. And it rained on that day, and it leaked in the window. And Janie told me on her deathbed that it was absolutely perfect. And her mother had to come apart because she had opted for a village wedding, a country wedding in Crestline, which is charming to me because that's the origin of our church. Well, this wedding, too, was a village wedding. It was a country wedding, which means uh, that it's a little different than the way we do it now, but it was no less important to the whole community. Weddings in those days, as best I can tell, began on Wednesday night after the dinner. The ceremony would happen, and then they would walk by torchlight back to their house. People were too poor to go on a honeymoon in those days, so they would simply go back to the house by torchlight 
And for a week, they would have an open house with feasting, and it would be a rare holiday for the whole town because people who worked that hard and lived that close to the bone might not ever have that much to eat, might not even have meat to eat except during a wedding. So it was very, very, very important to the whole community that they be included and that they, that they feast and enjoy together. And it's here that we see the big problem. They're running out of wine. Hospitality in the East is a sacred duty. I mean, if you travel, I like to, you don't even have to travel to, to the Middle East to eat this. Go to any Arab restaurant in your city and you'll notice that the portions are very generous. That's all built in. And you have to ask the question, if you look at the first chapter of John, Jesus has picked up five disciples. I wonder if he brought five extra uh, mouths to feed there that night. But for any family in this village, for the provisions to run out would be a terrible humiliation. And then comes Jesus' reply, right? Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? Woman, sometimes when it comes to the Bible, words can be translated, but not context. In other words, sometimes they have a word for something and we don't have a word for something. And for Jesus to call his mother woman sounds harsh at first, but we can we can see a clue if we go to John 19, chapter 26. This is that beautiful part of the Passion Gospel, which for my money is probably the most moving as it's remembered by John's Gospel. Jesus is dying on the cross and he sees Mary with his best friend, his own mother with his best friend. And he says, woman, here is your son, which tells me, which tells me, that woman is a title of great respect. And my hunch is that when he says woman, he really means is what we might say, mama. Many of you know that I have a game I like to play. I have an archaeologist friend and I go to Israel a good bit and the field is biblical archaeology. The game that I play, I call it a get, where you can read the Bible, especially stories about Jesus, and you could touch something Jesus touched or walk where Jesus walked or sat where he sat. Mary, his mother, is much more elusive. You can go to Nazareth and you can be close to where she was. There's no way to know for sure. You can go to Bethlehem and you can be close to where she gave birth to the baby, even though there's a church there, the Church of the Nativity. As with the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth, these are traditional sites. There's no way to know. But there is one place where you have a get when it comes to Mary. That's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which is built over Calvary. It's built over uh, the place of crucifixion, and Mary was there. She was always there. The last person among the last people that Jesus would see in this on this side of his earthly life would be Mama. Mama was there, and my hunch is that Mama was probably always there uh, in the background, uh, cheering her son on, offering support, uh, being there when he needed him. Uh, she was always there for him. Well, Here's another detail. There's water in the story. Remember, this is living water. And in the story, we've got water jars for purification. And these are huge, 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Water jars for purification would mean that this water would be reserved for the washing of hands. It was a ritual and also of the vessels to prepare the meal. Now, I I find this fascinating because I'm trying to build the case throughout this podcast that they live in a water-stressed world. So I think this is fascinating that water would be so valuable. I think in my Sunday school faith, I would have would have learned as a child that the, that the water, which had no value, would be turned into wine, which had value. But let's remember that water in itself has great value, and they use it to, to wash. So water is so important to them 
that this water itself is holy and it's filled to the brim. I love that little detail. Nothing else can go into it. John's gospel wants to make sure that this is no parlor trick, that this is a miracle from God. And it was here at a Galilean girl's wedding that Jesus performs an extraordinary miracle in an ordinary place. So what does this water miracle mean for us? Well, it can mean a lot if we think about it. First of all, this is a lesson in joy when it comes to what God wants for us and through us. God wants our homes and our worlds to be a happy place. Ours is a religion of joy. I started going to Israel on a sabbatical in 2014. I went because I thought a minister was supposed to go. Ended up changing my life and, of course, making lifelong friends over there. But at first, I was resistant because I was, I was pretty freaked out about the Sabbath. The idea that a city like Jerusalem would stop moving in the, on a Friday evening and not do anything on Saturday just sort of, just sort of messed with my head. And then I had all the stories right in my, in my memory about Jesus healing on the Sabbath and the old, the old mean Pharisees would write all that down and, and, you know, conspire to kill him, that sort of thing. What I didn't know until I got there was that the Sabbath's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Friday's just a buzz as everybody's getting their groceries and, and someone starts cooking and you could smell the smell cooking everywhere. My friend Don lives in a suburb of Jerusalem that's inhabited from Jews from South India of all places. And so you can hear the curry, smell the curry cooking rather all day long and they eat and children run up down the road and they all go to the synagogue together. They call it shul and they'll worship and, and they have a lot of fun. It's intergenerational and the people are drinking wine and praying and eating. And then the next day uh, they rest. And I, one time I asked Edan what he liked to do on the Sabbath. He said, I like to lay around and watch sports all day. And I'm thinking, wow, I could be Jewish too. It's all about rest. It's rest in God, but also rest with each other. And we we Protestants, especially those of us who come from that brand of Christianity, uh, I think we ruined that point of religion. We turned it into something funereal and dead, right? And whispered and quiet and 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 holy, scrubbed up and holy to the point that, that it became the opposite of the religion of the Bible. The religion of the Bible is festive. Something happened at my church post-COVID that, that's just quite happenstance, but it's been marvelous. Uh, we, um, like every church, we had to shut down in 2020 for a time, and we took that time to reinvent ourselves a little bit. We had a retired local chef who's actually a brilliant chef with a cult following. He joined our church. He got our, he got our kitchen Board of Health certified. We all got a food handler's license. We began a, a takeout restaurant. And then when church came back on Sunday mornings, we wanted to have uh, Jimmy's wonderful food available to more people. And then there was still the COVID protocols. So we took all the furniture out of the parlor and we put these high toppers in there with the steam table in the middle. And and Jimmy Jimmy would put these, still does to this day, these wonderful egg wraps and scratch-made things, biscuits and Monte Cristos and homemade donuts. People take a phone and pay with their QR code, and the food is out all morning. Many of us go to churches. If they have breakfast, it's a fixed time, right? It's 20, 30 minutes before Sunday school. This food just sits out all day. And so people are out there talking, and they're laughing, and they're sharing, and they're inviting friends, or they're meeting uh, new members, or they're reconnecting with old members. Food has become a catalyst to make Sunday morning just really fun. Now, if you've got a slow kid, you don't have to miss breakfast in the morning. You can come at 1045 right before the 11 o'clock service and still get something to eat. And I would say that food has become the glue really to hold our church together and to make it happy 
in that Bible kind of way. I'll say it one more time. The religion of the Bible is much more festive than what we've done to it. We should not compartmentalize our joy. Let's not make the fun things of our lives apart from the worship part of our lives. Life is meant to be engaged, and that's all of it. God is meant to be enjoyed along with everything else in life, the good stuff that we love. So in this story, holy water becomes holy wine, and it's all the same. Hey, and look where the miracle happened. It happened in a home. It didn't happen in a church or a synagogue, which means that probably more often than not, the most important religion happens out there, right? Don't don't separate home. People will do this to me all the time. They'll say, Rich, I got to tell you something. I'll say, shoot. And they'll say, well, let's go outside. Well, <laughs> hey, friend, if God can hear you out there, God can carry, carry you in here too. So you might as well tell me in church, right? We're the ones who tend to separate and we think that God is not somewhere when more often than not, God is in the every day. Which brings me to another thought, okay? Turning the water into wine wasn't some salvific event, okay? It wasn't something that was going to change the course of world history. It was simply important to a little family and a little village. Nearly everyone can be called upon to do the big thing from time to time. You know, any any given time, this church might be called to do heroic outreach. We might be called to have a uh, a collection, if you will, of bottled water in the disaster area. We might be called on to provide significant funds for, for some sort of tragedy. Uh, but what about the little things every day, the little things that we might do in the everywhere? Uh, not too long ago, I was in the airport in another city and, and sitting there waiting on the airplane, about three rows over, full flights, everybody sitting around. This woman was reading her phone and she had the flashlight stuck on it. And I don't know if you've ever done that before. I, I from time to time, I'll do it. I know now I can kind of look and see the light, but she was an older person and probably not really all that familiar with the phone, doing the best she can. And the light was just blinding everybody around her. She was running her battery down and nobody was saying anything. So I just got up and I walked over three rows and I said, ma'am, uh, your battery's going to run down. Your flashlight's on your phone. And she looked at me with such such grateful eyes. I felt ashamed. I just had to look away. And I thought, what kind of world do we live in where we don't take care of each other in those ways? If we can do the big things, can we do the little things? Can we look the cashier in the eye? Can we pick up the trash that we step over? Can we can we be helpful? Can we be kind? Those two are important things. If God is with us in the little ways, how can we do the little ways for God? We also see something beautiful in Mary's faith in her son. I mean, I mentioned she was always there and she was there at Calvary. But here at this wedding, she's in a deep relationship with a boy. Remember, he says, woman, what has this got to do with you and me? You and me, they're a team. And better yet, she trusted him. We have PTO meetings in our neighborhood, and they're rarely that attended. I mean, people sometimes are more interested in other things. But a parent told me that a recent PTO meeting at one of the elementary schools uh, used the topic of anxiety, and it was packed to the gills. I am convinced that children are among the most affected by the pandemic disruption. These last three years have been the hardest on children and on old people. Those are the two two groups. And so the anxiety is is endemic in, in our in our culture. And what this teacher said to the or this this professional said to all these parents, rather, is that children, in order to combat anxiety, they need a person. They need a person, a compass, a lodestar. They need a person to get them through whatever they are afraid of. And I want to say to all of us this, 
Yes, I hope we always have a person, but we need to remember that our faith is a personal faith and Jesus is our person. For God so loved the world, we're told later in John's gospel, that he became one of his own creation so that we could see God and see how God lives, how God loves, how God dies, how God rises, so we know how it works. We have a person so we don't have to be afraid. That's a lot of meaning in a little village wedding story. And I'll leave us with one final thought. Think about those big jars. The family gets 180 gallons of wine. That is the abundant blessing of God. So I'll leave us with a couple of questions. Um, see if the, this will get you thinking. How has God shown you compassion? Big ways, little ways, maybe especially little ways. How has God shown you compassion? How do you feel God's presence at home? Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. St. Luke's is partnering again with Canterbury United Methodist Church for Samaritan Place Market, a Christmas village. Avondale Samaritan Place will be transformed into a Christmas village for invited guests to shop from hundreds of new gifts at greatly reduced prices. There are several ways to help. George Jones at Snoozy's Kids is familiar with the items needed and is happy to assist you and deliver your purchases to Canterbury. You can give him a price range and he's happy to shop for you if you prefer. You may also shop online via a link on our website under Updates. Folks are needed to set up and assist during the shopping from December 5th through the 9th. Help is also needed to keep gifts in order during the collection month of November. A handful of folks will go to Canterbury on Sundays from November 6th through the 27th between 5 and 7 p.m. to move boxes to the pods. This will not take more than two hours, but during that time, the church will be open. Please contact Lauren Lovell, Lauren S I L V at gmail.com if you're interested in helping for more information. A variety of opportunities are available to help volunteer and set up these toys during the month of November. For more information about how to serve, look on our website at www.saint-lukes.com/updates.